All right, it's amazing. You know, we had not talked about their testimony today. Yet your testimony is exactly where we are in the sermon today. Almost word for word, exactly what they share today is exactly what we want to look at. We started last week the book of Nehemiah. We called it the journey home. The journey home. The people of Israel still in captivity. Time to return to Jerusalem, to the city of David, to the place where God placed his name. Last week was step one. We called it the burden. The burden that is within within each one of us, that God is calling us to do something, that God wants us to be involved, that God is moving us somewhere. The very burden you felt when you went to school, when you went back to school that second time, back there to get your graduate degree, when you came here to the States, when you came through everything, there was always a burden that God places there to lead us forward. Let's continue today on this next one. Part two, the step forward. After you feel the burden that God has placed on your heart to do something with the gift that he's put in you, you have to take a step forward, amen? Larry had to get down on his knees, crawl on that glass, beg you to marry him, and then you said, I'll think about it. And then after he laid there weeping and bleeding for two weeks, you said, okay, get up, I'll marry you. Amen? That's how it was. A good woman is worth crawling through glass for. Gentlemen, you better say amen or you're not going home tonight. Okay, here it is. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. This is exactly your testimony. On that step forward, you have to take risks. Take risks. Here it says, During the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why are you sad when you are not sick? This is nothing but depression. I was overwhelmed with fear and replied to the king, May the king live forever. Why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king asked me, what is your request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. May the Lord add a blessing to this, his word, because this is how it all starts. This is how it starts. Now remember last week when Nehemiah hears the report of Jerusalem. The walls have been broken down. The gates have been burned. There's no longer protection against invaders and robbers and thieves and highwaymen. His heart was broken and he was saddened. This is now the month of Nisan. Four months have transpired. For four months he has felt the burden of God. For four months he has looked for what we call in the church a kairos moment. All you who survived Greek and are surviving Greek know what a kairos moment is. A moment of opportunity, a God-appointed time. Here's the thing, church. In your life, the Lord Jesus will put before you a kairos moment. That moment may be the chance, the opportunity to share the gospel with somebody. A time where the Lord has anointed their ears so that they can hear the gospel. A time when you are prepared to serve the Lord and now suddenly you have the freedom to do it. You have the gifts, the talents, the abilities. You have this wonderful moment of opportunity. This is his Kairos moment, his moment of opportunity. Month of Nisan, 20th year of King Artaxerxes. 
Now remember, Nehemiah is the cupbearer. What do we say the cupbearer does? He tastes the royal wine to make sure it's not poisoned. He bears the signet ring of the king. He often dealt with the financial matters of the king. And also what? He dwelt so close to the king that he slept near the harem of the king himself. This is a man who is trusted above all men in the kingdom. Now here's the thing. When the wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. This can be interpreted two ways. Either he took this royal cup, he took this beautiful golden goblet, he filled it with wine, and he handed it to the king. Or it means this. Now keep this in your mind. The king is sitting there, and he has his goblet in his hand, and Nehemiah standing over his shoulder looks down. The king's glass is empty. So what's going to happen? The king is going to look up at Nehemiah. He is going to hand back his glass, and Nehemiah will be inches from the face of the king of the earth. Now, here's the thing. When that moment happens, Nehemiah, a trained professional, knows what he is to do. He is to put on a pleasant expression. He is to look joyful. Do you know why? Because you're in the presence of the king of all the earth. You're not supposed to be sad. You're not supposed to be depressed. You're supposed to be joyful because you have the privilege of being in the presence of the king. You ever wonder why people come to church on Sunday looking like they've had diarrhea for a month and they've been sucking on prunes and, and, and like they're constipated. They get that constipated looking. You ever wonder why that is? You have come into the presence of the king of the universe. He has called you into his presence, lovingly saying, come, my son, my daughter, I want to be with you. I want to share my presence with you. You shouldn't come looking, you know, like you haven't had any Snickers bar in two weeks. You should look joyful. So should Nehemiah. But for four months, the burden of Jerusalem had been on his heart. He was weighed down in his spirit. Now, here's the great thing. He says, I had never been sad in his presence because it's illegal. It's illegal to be sad in his presence. In fact, if you go to Esther chapter 4, verse 2, don't go there now. Write it down. Look it up. If you go to Esther 4, 2, when Mordecai hears that the Jews have been targeted for death, what does he do? He runs outside, he rips his clothing, and he wails to God for this reason. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth, or clothed in the garments of weeping. What king did Mordecai serve? Xerxes, the destroyer of the Greeks, the victor of Thermopylae. This was a mighty king. You know who Xerxes was, children? Artaxerxes' daddy. Don't you think Artaxerxes learned from his father the proper etiquette of the court? So Nehemiah was taking his life in his hands. In fact, so the king said to me, I mean, he's holding up his cup. Nehemiah is two inches from his face. He can see the pain and anguish on his face. He says, why are you sad when you're not sick? You see, if he were sick, he wouldn't be allowed near the king. He'd have to stay in his chambers so the king would not be infected. He says, if you're not sick, why do you look so bad? Because Nehemiah has served him many times. He has seen the joy on his face of serving the king. This is nothing but depression. Now look at this, I was overwhelmed with fear. Why? Because this was Nehemiah's moment. This was the moment he had waited for for four months. The moment he had prayed for, dear God of heaven, give me one chance, just one Lord, to speak to the king 
on behalf of my people. Larry, you had your moment. You prayed, dear Jesus, let me win this woman. And you had your moment, and now you, but you were afraid, weren't you? I bet you were sick. I'm like, oh, I'm going to lose it, because you were so nervous. See, now I cheated. When I asked my wife to marry me, I was preaching that day. So I called her up to help me with the sermon. Y'all, this is evil. Don't ever do this. I called her up to help. I said, I said, I said Marilyn, will you want to help me with the sermon? Oh, sure, okay. So you come up, and you, you play like this girl that I've been ignoring, and then I, I'll, I'll just pretend to tell you, you know, I'm so sorry that I've been ignoring you. I don't mean to be evil. You're a good person, and I want to know you. That's what I told her. So she's ready for that, right? And I'm all like, you know what? I love you so much, I can't live. Will you marry me? And she's like, goes into shock. Man, they, they had the paddles ready to start her heart again. It was good. So I know, I know that moment when you get weak in the knees, you get sick. It's your moment to stand up. And that moment, whether you're sharing Christ or asking your girl to marry you or anything that you're doing on God's behalf, you can be nervous. You can be scared. It's what you do in the moment of fear that matters. No soldier has ever gone into battle and not been afraid. It's what you do when you're afraid that matters. No nurse has been in an operating room with a man's chest cracked open in front of him and all of his innards beating in front of you. Nobody goes into that situation and lays hand on human flesh that isn't terrified. But you do what you're trained to do, and all the nurses better say what? Remind me not to get sick around y'all, because y'all do what you're trained to do because you've trained for that moment. As believers, we train for the moment that we share Christ or we step into that blessed moment. I was overwhelmed with fear and applied to the king. May the king live forever. Now, that wasn't that was just the protocol. That's how you address the king whenever you speak. Because Nehemiah normally would stand by and would say nothing unless addressed by the king. May the king live forever. Why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruin and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Notice what he doesn't do. What does he not say? O king, my city, Jerusalem, is in ruins. Why did he not say the city where he was from? I'll tell you why. Xerxes had married a Jewish woman, right? Her name was? Esther, there we go. Y'all got to connect these dots together. It's good. Okay, but Artaxerxes had no great love for the Jewish people. In fact, Xerxes, if you look at Ezra 4, 6, Ezra, I mean, Xerxes had received word that the Jews were plotting to overthrow the Persian kings. Well, Xerxes was a tough guy. He wasn't worried about it. He listened to the stories and he put them aside. Now, Artaxerxes gets a letter in Ezra 4, 17, and it says, O king of kings, O lord of the earth, these Jews are going to overthrow you and take back their city. So they're building the city of Jerusalem, right? Remember, they started back under Zerubbabel, and they're still building under Ezra. Artaxerxes is the man who stopped the construction of the walls of Jerusalem. Go look at it. It's in Ezra 4, 17 through 23. Artaxerxes, this man who is sitting inches from Nehemiah, is the one who stopped the construction. Persian kings don't like to overturn their decisions. They're very arrogant, very proud, completely unlike any of us in this room. We're all very quick to say, oops, I was wrong, sorry, let me overturn that decision, right? Just say yes and humor me. Thank you, okay. That's how it works. So understand why he's afraid. Not only is he going to speak to the king about being, you know, ugly in his presence, he's going to ask him 
to flip over a decision that he had just made several years ago. Artaxerxes is going to remember this. And his reaction will probably be, you know what? How dare you ask me to save those people? They're plotting to overthrow me. Are you plotting to overthrow me too? Guards, kill this punk. That's exactly what he could expect if Artaxerxes was displeased. Now notice the last thing he did. So I prayed to the God of heaven. You've got to appreciate these words. These words are not, the king asks him a question. He goes, just a minute, king. Oh, God, help me give the king the right. He didn't do that. This word for prayed is breathed. He breathed a silent prayer for strength to God Almighty. and said, Lord, now's my moment. Now is my chance. Now give me the strength I need to speak to the king on behalf of your people. See, all of us, when we stand up and take risk, where that risk is getting married, moving to a brand new country, going to a brand new job, stepping out after a surgery and getting physical therapy, whatever that risk is that God is asking you to take, to sing or to play an instrument, to serve as a deacon, to serve as a servant of the church, whatever that risk is, you need to breathe a prayer to God before you step into that. Because you need to be sure, Lord, for four months I have felt a burden to do this. But Lord, it's my last chance. If this is not where you want me, you need to tell me. Understand, very important, you take risks. Prayer is an intricate part of that next step forward. Okay, but let's press on now. Go on to Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. After you do that, after you decide to take that risk, after you step into that kairos moment, you need to get your ducks in a row. Now, if you don't know that expression, real simple. You ever watch ducks around here walk? I mean, I hate this. Where I live on Capitol Boulevard, there's a back road to my daughter's school. These stupid things that should be on my dinner plate, they line up and they walk across the road. They keep walking. And you're like sitting there watching. Okay, when I lived in Montana, you get like four or 500 cows going across the road. You turn the car off and you get a sandwich because you know you're going to be there for an hour. But these are ducks. And they're, they're crawling across the road. And the, the guy ahead of you swerves around the ducks and misses them. And they just keep going. And you're, you're stuck. You either run over the ducks, which my daughter would hit me for. So I'm going to school. You know, she's there. Don't hit the ducks, Dad. You've got to wait for the ducks to get across the road. Now look at this. He says, okay, he's praying. He answered the king. If it pleases the king, remember, everything you pray to God, it better be something that pleases God, not what pleases you. So he prefaces this request with this. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah and to the city where my ancestors are buried so that I might rebuild it. Remember, to the Jews, a burial site was sacred. But you know what? To the Persians... It was also sacred. Nothing could be more sacred than to care for your ancestors who had passed into the next life. This was critical. I mean, I've been to some of the, the graveyards in Manila. Good grief. I've seen housing complexes that are not that big. Seriously, I mean, huge. I mean, they're like buildings with people in them. Well, dead people in them anyways. And I'm like, that's caring for the dead. That really is taking care of people. You know, he says this. He says, then send me there. That I, that I may rebuild this place where my ancestors come from. He's still not mentioning Jerusalem. He doesn't want to get in trouble. The king with the queen seated beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you return? 
Now, the king's not stupid. He has compassion for what's going on. He feels Nehemiah's need. Perhaps he even knows Nehemiah's faithful service for many years to him. So he has this kind of a relationship. He says, yeah, this man does need to go take care of his family. So I gave him a definite time, and it pleased the king to send me. Oh, this is so, so important. I also said to the king, if it pleases the king, let me have letters written to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates River so that they may grant me safe passage. Remember, these were not safe times. And many times regional governors, small little dictators that they were, would charge fares or abduct people or steal goods under the table, of course. So they needed letters of safe passage to get them through. Until I reached Judah, and let me have a letter written to Asaph, king of, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to rebuild the gates of the temple's fortress and the city wall and the home where I will live. Now the king granted my request for I was graciously strengthened by my God. That last line, if you don't have it underlined in your Bible, sweetheart, you need to underline that last sentence. For I was graciously strengthened by my God, because it is critical to everything that we do in the Lord's name that we are strengthened by his service. Okay, go back up. It pleases the king. So whenever we do something for the Lord, whether it is serving in a worship team, serving as a deacon, serving on one of the many um, ministry teams that the church is going to have after we finish our bylaws today, it's critical that you are sure that this is where God is moving you. Don't let your vanity do it. Don't let your pride do it. Don't let your professional training do it. Go where the Lord puts you and where he equips you, all right? If you're serving as final favor, send me to Judah that I may rebuild it. Now, what's interesting is, this was a good situation. I told you about the Kairos moment. Notice who's next to the king. Who is it? It's the queen. But this is not just the queen. This is the Shagel. Now, you see, normally the queen would not be in the king's presence ever. She would stay in the harem, stay in, in the place where all the other women were, and the king would call her later that night. If the queen was present, it's because there was a party going on. And when there's a party going on, Persians get drunk. That's just how they were. I'm sorry, I'm not Persian, but there you go. Now, the Shagel, the Shagel has two meanings. Either she is the ultimate queen, or, more likely, she was the queen of the harem. She was his favorite lover. She was his favorite woman. That's why she was on the throne next to him. Her presence there in this picture tells you that something festive, something joyful, something happy is going on, otherwise she wouldn't be up there. Because right next to the king's throne was a smaller throne for the Shagel or for the queen mother, depending on who was there that day. So it's interesting that God has given him this moment and this woman's presence to tell him, this is your time, this is when you can speak. See, I love doing this, the research on this. I love looking at this because it just paints that picture of how meticulous God is in preparing every moment. You don't have to worry, Lord, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? God will do everything, including putting the favorite woman in the picture to get the job done. Now, I've got my favorite woman right there. So when I do things, I keep my shagel with me. It's important. What, y'all missed that point, didn't you? Went, whoosh, Go home in about an hour. You're going to go, I get it. It means husbands, hang on to your wives because they're a blessing from God and he put them there for a reason. And all the women said, 
you know, y'all pick it up. That's good. This side over here still doesn't believe in Jesus, but I'm okay. I'm working on you. Oh, my goodness. It's okay today. Now, notice this. The king's in a good mood, so he looks at them. He's inches from his face. He looks at his face. He knows he's hurting. He says, how long will, you, will your journey take, and when will you return to me? Now, you got to think about this. Where he's going is a considerable distance away. It's a considerable distance. If you look at it later, you'll find out that the very shortest distance from where he was in Susa to where he was going in Jerusalem, the quickest trip, if he had a military escort and, you know, quick chariots, two months would be the fastest he could get there. So understand, he would need a minimum of two months travel time, not preparation time, travel time. But however, if you think about it, when Ezra went over in Ezra chapter 7, it took five months to get from Susa to Jerusalem. Five months. That's ten months round trip. Guys, that's a year for preparation and travel, not, inclu not including taking care of the business he went there to do, right? So he is asking the king for a considerable chunk of time off. But you know what? The king knows that too. The king knows how far Jerusalem is. He knows how far Judah is. So he can guesstimate how long he'll be gone. But notice what he says. So I gave him a definite time, and it pleased the king to send me. When you get your ducks in a row with ministry, here's what you need to do. I intend to serve the Lord by doing this thing that God has put in my heart, and this is when I'm going to do it. I am going to start on this date, and I'm going to commit no less than this much time to it. You see, typically in the church what we do is this. We feel something happening, and we jump in before we pray about it. And when we jump into it, we do it for a couple weeks or maybe a month, and we go, oh, that takes too much time. It takes time away from my television. It takes time away from my dog. It takes time away from my poker game. Oh, I'm sorry. We're Baptists. We don't play poker. From go fish. You know, we, so we, what do we do? We don't prayerfully consider the commitment. We don't prayerfully consider what it's going to cost. We jump in. Then what do we do? We jump back out. Here's the thing. When you get involved in serving the Lord, you need to calculate the risk and you need to get your ducks in a row before you jump into it. You need to make sure that you have cleared the decks, you put everything in its place. Look what he did. He asked the king to give him the letters written to the governors of the region. Now, there's two types of governors in the region. There's a small provincial, sort of a town type of governor. Then there were the major regional satraps. The satraps were the guys that covered whole territories, whole regions. He had to deal with both of them. Now, the little guys that are living in little provinces, they're the big problem because they're the ones that want to extort money, get taxes, all that stuff. The bigger guys, they had all the money already because they were extorting it from the little guys. So he had these letters of transit to get him past all the governors saying, this is my servant, don't touch him. But also this, you know, he asked for safe passage, right? But along with safe passage, he needed supplies. Now all throughout the empire, the king had storehouses. And the king's storehouses were for the use of those that the king had sent. So let me ask you a question. Do you ever feel like God has called you to do something, but you feel like you don't have the gifts and the talents and the abilities to do it? Do you ever feel that way? Yes, you do. Just say yes. Carry on with the thought. I know you do because I feel that way sometimes. Actually, every time I get in the pulpit, I feel that way, but it's okay. Here's the thing. It's not about you. It wasn't about Nehemiah. It wasn't about how much Nehemiah could carry. It wasn't about how good Nehemiah was. It was how many storehouses the king has got. Let me ask you, 
Do you think God is so broke? He can't fill this church 10 times over if he wants to. Maybe we're not ready for it yet. Maybe we don't have our ducks in a row yet. But here it is, God's storehouse, the storehouse of heaven, the cattle on a thousand, ten thousand hills. What is it that God could call us to do as a church, as a family, as a person? What can God call you to do that he can't give you the abundance of his kingdom to get it done? Let me answer you. Nothing. There's nothing that God calls you to do that you cannot do by his resources. He wanted, he wanted access to all the storehouses of the king. Fresh horses, fresh chariots, fresh soldiers. He wanted gold. He wanted letters even to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest. Now, these foresters, these men right here, their charge was not a single branch was to be taken from the king's forest. Why? Who did it belong to? The king. Only the king could use what belonged to the king. He needed letters so that this man would give him permission to cut down the king's trees to rebuild the house he would live in, the gates, and all the fortifications. See, he knew exactly what needed to be done. Church, we need to know exactly what we need to do to make GGCF the very best vehicle that God can use to reach this community for Jesus Christ. Amen? So we need to take account of what it needs to get that done, and we need to make sure that we have dedicated it to prayer and dedicated it to proposition. Now consider this. He is not worried about this. The king granted his request, for I was graciously strengthened by my king. Let me give you a different reading of that. And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good. You can also read gracious and kind. For the gracious hand of my Elohim, my mighty one, my God was upon me. Is the strength to accomplish the kingdom's work in your hands? No. You don't have the power. You don't have the skill. You don't, I don't have the skill, power, and ability to convince you of anything. I could sit up here, and as far as you're concerned, I could be selling vacuum cleaners, and you'd have the same look on your face. That's how it goes. Here's the thing. It ain't me. I ain't selling you nothing. You know what I'm doing? I'm walking you through what God is telling you he will do for you if you surrender it to his way, his time, his plan. Who put the burden on Nehemiah to go? God. Who put the Kairos moment, that perfect moment in time, who put it there? God. Who changed the king's heart? Nehemiah's tears, his sad-looking face? God moved the king in that moment to grant his request. It's not about what we do. It's what God's already doing. I love Blackaby. Henry Blackaby said it. Don't plan something and then tell God, God, can you bless this? God don't work that way. God said, no, no, honey, this is what I'm doing right now. You can get on the boat or stay on the island. Thank you very much, Jack Sparrow. Stay on the island and you ain't getting off. I can tell who saw Pirates of the Caribbean. You're the only ones that laughed. Okay, let's press on, let's finish this up. Nehemiah 2, 9 and 10. Nehemiah 2, 9 and 10. So you've taken that risk. You stepped into that moment. You have then gotten your ducks in a row. You've got everything ready to go. You know what it's going to cost you to serve God. You know what it's going to cost you to be a servant, to be a man or a woman of faith. Now this, you've got to face the enemy. Nehemiah 2, 9 and 10. You've got to face the enemy. I went to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. Okay, he's playing it right by the book. The king had also sent officers of the infantry 
and Calvary with me. The king provided even more than Nehemiah asked for. Isn't it always that way when you serve God? God always gives you abundantly, exceedingly more than you ask for. You ask for God to give you a chance to share Christ with somebody, and what does he do? He births them into the kingdom right in front of you. That wasn't your work. That was God's gift. He gave them officers and infantry and cavalry. Remember, five-month journey across dangerous deserts. There's highwaymen, there's thieves, there's all kinds of nastiness out there. He wanted to make sure that his cupbearer went and came back on time. Now, when Sambalat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite officials heard that somebody had come to seek the well-being of the Israelites, they were greatly distressed. Remember what I told you last week? When Nehemiah hears that the gates have been broken down, sorry, the walls have been broken down, the gates have been burned down, this was a recent occurrence. This is not how it had always been. People had been in, in uh, Jerusalem for almost 100 years. This was a recent thing. They had renewed their attacks on it. Why had they renewed their attacks on the city? Remember what Artaxerxes had done a couple years before? He had stopped the building project. All the enemies of Jerusalem said, Aha! The king said, Stop building. That means he's not caring. Now we can attack and we can burn the gates. We can break down the walls and the king won't stop us. Remember, it was, it was Cyrus, king of Babylon, who sent the first people back. We talked about that last week. Cyrus sent them back. In fact, Darius I even said, Yeah, give them more. Don't let, let, any, let any nation be cursed that stands against these people of Israel. Kings in the past had stood for them, stood with them. Now suddenly, there's an enemy. And this enemy is coming because Artaxerxes is fighting other, other foes. He's fighting other wars. So he doesn't have time with a little upstart nation. He just stops the building project so he has nobody else to fight. That's interesting. When you look at this, it says they were greatly displeased. A finishing thought for you is this. If you start reading your scriptures like Tita Violeta said. You start pouring yourself into the Word, bathing yourself in the Word. You make it part of every day. You start submitting to the Word. You see things in your life that don't fit the Word. Okay, that's all that. Gambling, drugs, and women. You know that doesn't fit. So what do you do? The Word of God starts convicting you. You only got two choices. Run from God or run to God. So you say, let's give you the benefit of the doubt. You run to God. You start changing your life. You start to rebuild the walls of your heart. You start to rebuild the gates of purity that filter out the garbage of this world. Do you think Satan's going to be happy with that? No. Do you think Satan's going to leave you alone and be, ooh, scary, they're reading their Bible again. I should just leave them alone. No. He is going to redouble the attack on you because now you pose a greater threat to him. When you were asleep in the light, when you were Laodicean Christians, when you were not doing anything, when you were allowing anything into your eyes, anything into your ears, Satan didn't care. But when you're trying to get straight with the Lord, you watch all the temptations come. You watch all the things that will drag you away jump up in front of your face. They were greatly displeased. This Sambalot, this Tobiah, these were people who had control over the region, over that area. They profited greatly by being able to go in and pillage and support those who thefted off the Jews. It was not in their financial best interest to allow Jerusalem to be rebuilt. 
They didn't want that to happen. If Jerusalem became strong again, they would lose their power, and Satan never wants to lose power when he thinks he's got it. Amen? So here's the thing. You came through 50 years of marriage. Praise God, you got 50 to go. So you just got to keep going. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping here, okay? You know what? I'm aiming for 119 before I croak, so I got years to go before I sleep. Let me ask you a question. You guys ready to move out? We have the burden for what the church needs to be, right? We know that burden. Now we're stepping forward. We're going to finish up our bylaws today. We're going to step into Picnic Pinoy next week. We're going to be welcoming people, saying, thank you for coming to the church, you know. Like, like when Ivan came in today, I said, hey, Ivan, how are you doing? He says, good. Actually, I said, first I said, who are you? He said, Ivan. Okay, Ivan. I said I would say his name at least 10 times today so I don't forget his name's Ivan. Ivan should be mugged by everybody in the whole church. We should be so happy to see Ivan. We say, it's good to have you here, brother. Come on back. Be with us for Bible study. Come to my house and attend my Bible study so that everybody who comes here who's visiting knows that they are welcomed. They can come inside the gates of this church. They can come in where it's safe, where the word of God is preached in purity and in wholeness and totality. That's what we need to be. So are you ready to move out? Two, three things. If God has set a mission in your heart, are you ready to take the risk and, and have you started working on that by now? Do you know what it is you're supposed to be doing with your life? I mean, do you know? Do you know what your calling is? Are you supposed to be a teacher? Are you supposed to be a servant? Are you supposed to be a deacon? Are you supposed to be on the church council? Are you supposed to be involved in these ministry teams? And don't say you're too young, because until you're like three or four, you're too young. But once you hit six, I'm putting you all to work. If you're all over six, I'm making you work. You know, if you're, if you're a six-year-old little kid, you're going to go out to the park and hand out tracts with me. Because people can scoff at old men. They don't scoff at little children. So that's good. Every one of us, every one of us should say, my part of the church is to do this and to do this. And I am going to prepare myself to do that. I'm going to prepare myself for the Kairos moment when that girl I think is so cute opens up about her spiritual life and I get to ask her if she knows Jesus. Or when that boy that you think is just the end all and be all of, first of all, boys are never the end all and be all of creation. That's Jesus, don't get confused. Anyways, when that boy comes along, you need to make sure that boy is saved, make sure he's walking in the word, make sure that he's not going to pull you down before you pull him up. Ladies, I know of what I speak. A boy will drag you down into the depths of hell before you can ever wench that fat brother up into the gates of heaven. It's just the nature of life. I'm telling you the truth. That's why it says, do not be unequally yoked. You only go after the believer who is growing at the same rate you are. Not pleasant to hear? Absolutely the truth. If you don't believe me, read the word of God. It'll back me up. Point two, are you preparing everything possible to accomplish your mission? By that, are you praying every day? Are you praying for God to give you the moment? Are you studying the word of God like Tita Violetta said so that it's full of, it's your, your body is brimming with the word of God? And anytime a question pops up, the answer flows out. Scripture says that out of the abundance of the heart, your mouth speaks. I wonder what would happen if we had you guys just stand up and speak and then did an evaluation of the overflow of your life. We did this in The Mighty Men yesterday. We talked about what flows out of you and into your family, and into your marriage, and into your children. Take great caution, people. 
Because what comes out of your mouth is what's going on in your heart. If the only thing in your mouth is complaints and backbiting and griping and complaining and, you know, slanders, murder, and I hate that pastor, he's so mean. Yeah, if that's what's happening, first of all, Jesus needs to save you. But second of all, really, find out what's going on in there. Like I told you in the old days, if you want to stop the uh, enemy from fighting, poison the well. And Satan tries to poison our well every day with what we see and what we hear. Third point, are you on guard looking to see where and when the enemy will show his evil hand? Yes, the Lord has sent the angels of heaven around you as a military force to protect you. But you need to keep your eyes open. You need to be aware that when something weird starts happening, something unusual, out of place, starts going on in your life, you need to have your spiritual antenna up going, wait a second, what's this? This doesn't look right. This isn't the way my life normally goes. Why is this happening? Who is attacking? Because if you are a believer, you will be attacked, and you will be attacked as much as it takes to beat you down and make you silent. That is how Satan works. We'll do a whole lesson on spiritual warfare later. I've got a whole eight-week study on that one, so we'll do that later. But let's finish it up today. You have felt the burden for reaching the community of Raleigh, North Carolina, for Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to finish our bylaws today by the grace of God and the indulgence of the people. Now, having done that, we need to take the risk of being what we've never been, aggressive, going out, reaching out, becoming more proactive in our community. And when we do that, Satan's going to attack. But you know what? we got the forces of heaven to watch over our backs. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this day and for this time. Father, as we prepare now for the Lord's Supper, Father, as we prepare our hearts, I would ask you, Lord, to look into each one of us. <coughs> Father, is there poison in my well today? Is there frustration? Is there self-hatred? Is there low self-esteem? Father, is there something going on in me that is keeping me from loving you and serving you with all my heart? Father, your word says that each person must examine their self. First, to know if we are in the faith. But second of all, to make sure that our hearts are prepared to receive this time of communion. And Father, as we prepare to come before you, to celebrate the sacrifice that Jesus made. Father, I confess for myself that I am not perfect. I confess that sometimes when I'm in traffic, my thoughts are not what they should be. And sometimes, Father, when I am frustrated and when I am angry and when I am at my wit's end, instead of going to you and breathing Nehemiah's prayer for strength, that, Father, I, I breathe out other things which are not worthy of your servant. Father, I pray that each one of us today can confess in our own hearts those sins that have weighed us down this week. And Father, forgive us our sins. Cleanse us, Father, according to John 1, 9. Cleanse our hearts. Make us pure. Make us acceptable in your sight that as we receive the Lord's Supper, Lord, that we'll be able to celebrate it to the strengthening of this church, to the preparation for the mission ahead. And Father, all this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Keep your heads down, your eyes closed. I want to ask you, I just